picture it. We've all been there. It's 6.58. Your shift is so close to being over. The new shift is coming in to take over. You're still waiting for your replacement and thinking to yourself, Why do I always get the person who is late? Can I ever leave on time? You are preoccupied, tired, thinking about leaving. A new patient checks in. You call them into your triage booth. It's loud as other nurses are reporting to the next shift. As the patient comes into your booth, you barely look up. Full name and date of birth, please. TB, April 2nd, 1995. What emergency are you having today? Um, it hurts when I pay. There's a smell from down there. Any new sexual partners? Uh, a few. Okay, just need to ask you some safety questions and then we can get you to our fast track area. No one is hurting you, right? You don't want to hurt anyone else or yourself, right? Right. Okay, great. Have a seat anywhere and you'll be called when there's a room available. Time out. What just happened? What did you miss? Anything? What were you too preoccupied to notice? That this girl was dressed in a short strapless dress in February? It's 30 degrees outside in Philadelphia. Had you looked up and made eye contact, you could have seen the fear in her eyes. Had you asked her basic orientation questions, even though she's only 19, you might have realized she has no idea what city she's in or what day it is. Had you assessed her body language, you would have seen that she's hunched forward, holding herself, shivering, hiding her arms, hiding her bruises and scars. Had you looked just beyond her, you could have seen the intimidating person standing right outside the triage booth, glaring down at this girl. You could have picked up on their hostility directed towards this girl. You may have recognized this as, Steve, I'm here. Sorry, I'm late. You can go home. I'm so tired. I can't wait to get home and go to bed. Not a lot going on in the waiting room. Just a few people waiting for rooms. But is that true that there's not a lot going on in the waiting room? Could this have been a case of human trafficking that was missed? Under United States law, human trafficking is defined as the use of force, fraud, or coercion to compel persons into commercial sex acts or labor against their will. In 2020, there were 10,583 human trafficking cases reported in the United States, with estimates of up to 20,000 victims trafficked annually. Globally, it is the fastest growing criminal organization related to the $1 billion profits. Some research reports that over 87% of human trafficking survivors sought out some type of medical attention during their incarceration, but over 95% of those persons were not identified as potential victims by medical staff. Majority of these victims are seeking help in emergency departments. Emergency department nurses are frontline workers with honed assessment skills, and yet these victims are not being properly identified. We are missing a huge opportunity to identify and help these victims rescue themselves from human trafficking. This is Ring the Alarm, a podcast about human trafficking made for emergency nurses. My name is Alex Hudson, and I'm a practicing emergency department nurse in a large urban medical center located in Philadelphia, as well as a graduate nursing student at the Fitzpatrick College of Nursing at Villanova University. The scenario might sound familiar because in the fast-paced environment of an emergency department, 
Patient triage moves swiftly. The goal is to triage each patient in three to five minutes. This means the nurse must verify who the patient is, get their vital signs, review allergies, past medical history, current medications, and assess their safety, all while observing and assessing their nonverbal cues to identify what's really going on. Human trafficking has not traditionally been part of nursing education. Not every emergency department has focused on staff education, even though there have been studies finding that of human trafficking victims seeking medical care, over 50% of them are seen in emergency departments. I often think about what I potentially missed before I learned about human trafficking. This podcast is here to highlight what we as nurses and other healthcare professionals need to look for to identify potential human trafficking victims and how we can help these victims become survivors. Let's hear from the experts about human trafficking. First, I talked with Teresa Zielinski, who has a doctorate in nursing practice, is an advanced practice nurse practitioner, and a certified pediatric nurse practitioner. She has served as the previous president of the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners, otherwise called NAPNAP, and also serves on the Council of Advanced Practice Providers for the Emergency Nurses Association. She's an expert on today's topic. This is how she defines human trafficking. It's utilizing someone's body against their will. So in adults, there has to be um, proof of coercion and coercion underneath the age of 18. You don't have to prove that. Um, and that's kind of my specialty is in pediatrics. The average age of human trafficking is between the ages of 12 and 14 for entry, which is how we became involved with this. But there's got to be an exchange of goods um, along the way, in, along with those conjunction of like the coercion and co- um, coercion component of it. And what do you mean when you say um, exchange of goods? So it can be labor trafficking, where someone may be utilized for physical labor, manual labor, Uh, domestic help is a common component of labor trafficking. Then there's also sex trafficking, where it's exchange of whether money or drugs for sexual favors. So the Trafficking Victims Act in 2000, um, through legislation, defines sex trafficking as the recruitment, harboring, transportation, provision, or obtaining a purpose for the purpose of commercial sex act, in which the commercial sex act is induced by force, fraud, or coercion. And again, that force, fraud, or coercion doesn't count if you're under the age of 18, because you don't have the ability to consent to being sold. And labor trafficking is the recruitment, harboring, transportation provision, or obtaining of a person for labor services through that force of coercion for the purpose of subjective to involuntary servitude, debt bondage, or slavery. So those are kind of like the terms that they use when they're looking at the laws of trafficking. Can you describe how this could be different from someone being smuggled? Sure. So smuggling somebody is kind of taking them from one place to another. With trafficking, a human being is sold over and over again. So smuggling, if you think about it, it's taking somebody from across border lines, across state lines. Um, Human trafficking is the utilization of a human for more than one product. And I think that that's the unique component of human trafficking where people who sell drugs or guns, you sell the commodity and it's gone. Whereas a human being can be sold over and over and over again. Um, Some of the data show that the average gain for a trafficker is about $300,000 off of one human being. 
Can you break down for us the three element framework that is talked about a lot in the literature if nurses are reading journals in reference to what they're talking about when they're saying the acts, means, and purpose? So the action is like the recruiting or the harboring. You can be transporting them across state lines for it. Means, how are you getting that uh, versus force, fraud, or coercion. Um, And then the purpose is either sexual exploitation or forced labor. The action in sex trafficking includes advertising. A lot of times, and I think more so now after the pandemic, most of this trafficking, a lot of this happens online with sex trafficking. Um, We had a huge issue with this prior to the pandemic, but I think post-pandemic is so many people were online incessantly during the course of a year to 18 months, it has gotten much worse. We don't have all the statistics and the numbers for it. And the statistics prior to um, the pandemic were not great. I think when we look at statistics with human trafficking, we need to really kind of use a a broad lens in the respect of it's not something that's easily defined or reported. Um, They did come out with ICD-10 codes recently when you think about this from a healthcare perspective, but how comfortable are people in using them when looking at an electronic medical record? Because who has access to the electronic medical record? Whether it's the person who's trafficking them, many times it's family members that are trafficking victims. whether it be parents, aunts, uncles, or it can be uh, employers who may also be in charge of their healthcare um, issues. So these are all kinds of things that you have to take into consideration when thinking about trafficking. What types of strategies do groomers or traffickers use to lure in their potential victims? Traffickers recruit with what we call the triple T principles. So looking at targeting, tricking, and traumatizing. So you target the most vulnerable. You use manipulation, trickery to get them to do what you want to do. And then they're traumatized in order to kind of keep them to stay. So traffickers seek out the most vulnerable people. So people who have weaknesses with children. We look at that with children who are of the LGBTQ community, foster care, any children who's been in the system. Runaways, on average, are approached within 24 to 48 hours to be trafficked once they enter onto the streets. Tricking them, they break down whatever their resistances are. Do they need food? Do they need drugs? Do they need money? And they don't really, a lot of times, reveal the true intent. They they come at them as if they're going to save them. Oh, I can give you a home. Your parents are so bad. I can take care of you. Young people also want affection. And so a lot of times they play the boyfriend, girlfriend online. Um, So many relationships now start online. And so there's that trickery that goes online. And many times, and it's an adult playing, saying that they are another 16-year-old, 15-year-old online. And when you meet them, it turns out that they really aren't who they have said that they are. And then traumatizing them, whether it's through photographs, shame, threatening family members, whether it's taking away drugs. So they kind of turn it on them and like, if you try to leave, then this is what's going to happen. And so there really is a manipulative relationship there, which kind of traumatizes them into the point where they want to stay. And sometimes they may not even recognize that they're being victimized. They think they bring this on themselves. Right. Especially if the person's saying it's coming from a place of love. 
Yes. So often every day over and over and over again. Well, and I think we already mentioned that many times it's family members who are trafficking them. And so did mom and dad get divorced? And this is a true story of a coworker of mine that was taking care of a young lady um, who had revealed that she was being trafficked by her father. And it started out, her father asked her to do it because he needed rent money. And she felt like she owed it to her father because her mother left and she felt like it was her fault that her parents had gotten divorced. And so many steps down the road, here is this child being sold for sex by her own father um, because she thought she had done something wrong to break their household and their home. To kind of expand on that, what actions do traffickers take that can prevent victims from leaving? Many times, it's not always, but they take away, whether it's their legal documents, their driver's license, their passports. They, as I said, they kind of talk about killing family members, torturing family members, photographs that they're going to say they're going to release on the internet or to family members um, so that they can't leave. A lot of times there are drugs involved. And so are you going to be able to get the drugs that you're now dependent on that you can't get without them. So traffickers use forms of targeting and control via force, fraud, or coercion to bring individuals into human trafficking and then use threats leading to fear and traumatization to prevent these individuals from leaving human trafficking. Now we are going to head to the Philadelphia Sexual Assault Response Center, also called PSARC, to speak with Allison Denman, who is the clinical director and nurse manager of the center. She will talk to us about what she sees in practice and who the victims of human trafficking are. Does what you see in practice match the published data about the number of people who are trafficked in the Philadelphia? (laughs) Never. It is severely underreported. And honestly, even when I think about the individuals that we see in the rape crisis clinic here at PSARC, Um, I actually think that in my experience as a registered nurse in the ER, I might have seen more people who were being obligately trafficked in the emergency department setting uh, than in the rape crisis setting. Um, And I think that's because the emergency department is a very neutral setting for people to bring in patients, uh, typically escorted by their traffickers or their groomers, where you're not going to really see as often groomers or traffickers bringing a patient explicitly to a rape crisis center with that type of labeling, especially because we are housed in the same building as the Philadelphia Police Department's Special Victims Unit. Um, So we do see, I I really couldn't quite put together a true statistic for you, um, but we do see a significant number of people who have been trafficked in the rape crisis center. But I really do believe in my heart just from professional experience that I actually saw more people who were being trafficked in the emergency department setting because of that neutrality of that uh, environment for sure. What do you think is needed to help connect human trafficking victims with community resources? So I think that there needs to be definitely a better communication among clinicians, especially um, who often are the primary interface for disclosure of um, these instances of trafficking, especially because um, very often, and I'll, I'll talk about the emergency department in this instance, when we have patients who come in, let's say that they have a, a broken wrist or another orthopedic injury, 
they're typically not coming in saying, help me, I've been trafficked. Uh, because many times a lot of uh, victims of trafficking can't quite put a name to that relationship between themselves and the offending party, um, or they don't realize the, the totality of circumstances bringing them into that. Um, and they're really just making choices out of survivability. The, the really honest conversations, not only between clinician and patient, but also clinicians being connected to and acknowledging what services exist within the communities. A lot of these issues are perpetuated by um, restrictions of access in the community because of COVID or ongoing mental health concerns that um, predispose somebody to being taken advantage of and then trafficked or dependency on substance use and not having safe places to ingest those substances or um, you know, receive adequate care if that person does want to have um, a journey into sobriety, if that is a possibility for that individual. And um, a lot of clinicians in particular still kind of think of human trafficking as like the oogie boogie man loading people, particularly only young women into the backs of trucks or planes or something and shipping them across the ocean to who knows where to just exclusively exist within like a brothel system. And the matter of fact is that the, the real outreach that we're looking for is that people who are being trafficked exist around us every day in very, very casual settings um, and care for human trafficking is community care, first and foremost. Do most human trafficking victims know their trafficker? Uh, yes, absolutely. And they usually have very, very intimate relationships with them. Um, in my setting in particular, a lot of the um, like adolescent population that we see very often, if they're not being affected by... Um, you know, members within their own family system or community leaders, uh, very often it's a romantic partner that is uh, trafficking them. And they usually just are like, oh, that's my boyfriend, or I love them so much. I don't know why they do this to me. This is just the thing that we do together. It's not as bad as you think it is. Um, but it's not just exclusively within the adolescent population. We see it all throughout the lifespan. Um, and it, it very much is contingent on those other, um, you know, just predisposed risk factors of uh, independence or codependence, as well as health status and everything else that goes into that, especially with the adult population in mind. Um, but absolutely, people know who their traffickers are. It's not just some scary mafia man in the sky and we're like who is doing this i wish we could put a name to a face um they really are just neighbors we see them in the community together routinely does a person have to be moved around for the crime to be considered human trafficking no and i i really do think that that's an, an issue with the moniker used to to identify what is human trafficking um i i think that if we were to re remove and replace I won't say which word to replace it with because I, I don't have the um, uh, the vocabulary really to describe the totality and complexity that goes into this. But um, by saying human trafficking, I think that people instantly think of methods of transportation and having to 
kidnap and displace somebody entirely. And that's, that's simply untrue. Particularly if that's all you've seen in the media or in movies or what you've heard of and you have no you know, I'm looking at <laughs> I'm looking at you, Lifetime Movie Network. I'm coming for you. <laughs> so then who are the victims of human trafficking? Um, they could be anybody. They really could be anybody. Um, but especially individuals within our community who have some type of survival need. Um, people who have uh, developmental considerations, um, you know, are are very prone to being taken advantage of. We see a lot of um, homeless LGBTQIA2 uh, plus individuals who um, are taken advantage of because, again, we're looking at survival resources and access to means, not for comfort, but literally just to exist. Um, we see this with individuals who, um, you know, are young and maybe um, don't quite understand um, healthy relationship boundaries. I mean, any anybody, really anybody can be trafficked. And it really just takes a matter of, I don't want to say fate, because I think that sounds really cheesy, but your, your lot in life, some of us are very privileged to be born in the circumstances that we are never wanting. Um, and therefore, our ability to be trafficked is so much less than individuals who really need um, food, safety, shelter, access to medical care, and really just human connection also is, is very, very major. Thank you, Allison, for highlighting how anyone can be a victim of human trafficking, but certain persons like persons of color, those in the LGBTQ plus community, runaways, those in foster care, Persons dependent on illicit drugs and those with unstable housing represent a higher percentage of persons who are in trafficking. We are going to speak with Nicole Florentine, who is a practicing emergency department nurse and a certified sexual assault nurse examiner A, or a SANE A. She is going to highlight what we in the ER should be looking for as potential red flags of persons being trafficked. How would you recognize a person who is potentially being trafficked? So this is the part that gets kind of tricky. Uh, we would all like to think in our minds that if we were walking down the street or were somewhere, we would say, there's something not right and recognize that about that individual, but it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, the reality is these individuals could be your next door neighbors. They could be standing next to you in the line at the store. They could be, believe it or not, dropping their children off at the same school that your children go to school to. Uh, as emergency room nurses, they could be our patients that come in with very simple complaints, um, but they could actually be trafficking victims. Um, so the big answer to that is that sometimes it can be incredibly hard to tell. Uh, that's why for individuals like ourselves that work in emergency departments, sometimes that's the very subtle signs that can tip us off that something's wrong. Would you like to speak more about what the, some of those subtle signs could be? Absolutely. There's some red flags that will sometimes stick out uh, among our patients whenever they come in. It could be something as simple as they don't have any ID. And obviously people lose their ID, but there's a big difference between not having any ID and having lost your ID. Uh, they may be unaware of the date, time, and in some cases they may even be unaware of the year. Uh, they may be unable to provide you with their actual birth date. 
area of origin or any details that you would imagine that most people know. Um, but at times, sometimes our trafficking victims have been brought here um, at a very young age and they're not given the means to keep an appropriate amount of time or access to a calendar. So it might seem like an odd concept to us if somebody were to say to you, you know, what year is it or when were you born? But these can be things that uh, humans that have been trafficked from a uh, young age truly do not know the answer to. Um, another thing we you could notice is they may be with another individual whom they appear to be afraid of. Or you might notice that that individual doesn't seem to want to leave the patient by themselves. They go with them to the bathroom. They want to go with them to testing. And they want to be with them every moment. Um, and that comes into the control aspect of the human trafficking. They're afraid if they leave them alone, they may divulge that they're being held against their will. Um, you might find that the patient is reluctant to provide any kind of information related to their medical history. And this could re reluctance could be because they don't want to share what their treatment has been, or it could be because they genuinely do not know their medical history. They may not know if they've been vaccinated. They may not know if they had any childhood illnesses. Um, you might notice that they have, they're suffering from malnutrition or exhaustion. This is especially a red flag in youth. It's not normal for a 12 year old to be uh, experiencing malnutrition to the point that it affects their health. Um, we're all tired, but there is a whole difference between being tired and being exhausted, especially in kids. That's not something you're normally going to see. You might notice in their bag that they have multiple hotel keys. You might notice that for a young individual, they have an odd kind of tattoo. There are branding tattoos used amongst some sex traffickers. And if you work in a particular area, you might notice over time and start to recognize tattoos that are individual to your particular geographic area. And that may be something that moving forward would tip off for you if you saw that on another person. Um, you may notice that they have no control over their money, health insurance, or anything like that, that they appear to have nothing on them. Um, they might not have been given appropriate protective gear for work. This would be for your labor trafficking, you know, more than your sex trafficking. Um, you know, if somebody comes in with from an industrial hazard and it's apparent they weren't wearing the appropriate goggles, helmets, um, gear, anything along those lines, that could be something that would make you wonder why they didn't have that protective gear. You might find out that they're required to live in employer housing, um, which you know, generally nowadays, and it's something that you see from people. So that could be something to explore a little further with the patient. Um, a big one could be, uh, especially for females and in sex trafficking, is if they're inappropriately dressed for the wind weather. Um, this may be your girls in tank top dresses when it's 20 degrees out. Um, this could be I mean, even your males, this could be your patients that don't have a coat on in the winter or wearing sandals when there's three feet of snow out. Anything along those lines that they just don't appear to have the appropriate gear that they should have for the weather. Another one would be if you have a patient that's under the age of 18 and you are aware in some way that they're involved in commercial sex, uh, whether they've divulged that to you or you suspect, because that is never something that is legal under the age of 18. Um, so all these or just sort of, you know, subtle red flags can be very hard to pick up on, but it can be very important if you notice any of these things to try to explore a little bit further to see if you're able to elicit information that might help you decide if this is something that needs to be explored further or if they need some resources. I like how you mentioned earlier, we always need to be questioning why. Like, why doesn't this person have goggles? Why do they not have a helmet? And I think sometimes we are busy and don't always take those extra few seconds to pause and question why. 
this is a good reminder that we should always be assessing and trying to get to the truth if something doesn't make sense. Absolutely, especially because a lot of the times these patients may present with incredibly common complaints. You know, they could just have pelvic pain. They could be there because they're depressed, they're anxious, drug and alcohol use. You see a lot of like neurological symptoms, but another big one that you often see is tuberculosis just because of living conditions. Now, if I thought to myself about a patient coming into the ER with TB, I don't think I would immediately, that fact in itself wouldn't necessarily raise my spidey sense, so to speak. But if somebody is there um, with TB, they appear to be afraid of the person that they're with. They don't seem to know much about themselves, where they're at, even what city they live in. You know, those things put together are very tiny puzzle pieces that put together paint a bigger, you know, more sinister picture. Any guidance for how healthcare workers should open the dialogue with a potential human trafficking victim? We can take it upon ourselves to ask simple questions. You know, if you realize your patient can't present any ID, you can ask them if somebody took their ID. Uh, you can ask them if somebody takes all of their earnings. Um, you can ask them if they're actually able to leave their place of employment. Ask them if they can come and go as they please. They're very simple questions, but they can open very big boxes, so to speak. We can even ask them, where do they eat and sleep? Do they sleep in a bed? Or do you sleep in a cot on the floor? It might seem like a simple question, but your normal 22 year old, you would think can come and go as they please sleeps in a room by themselves. So answering no to any of those questions can really tip something off that something is not quite right. Um, if they start to answer questions, you can even delve a little deeper. You can ask them if they've ever been deprived of food, water, shelter, if their family's threatened, if they were to leave, uh, or have they ever been forced to do something they didn't wanna do. So, you know, there's just little questions that can get somebody talking. Any of us can do this. Our important role is just trying to understand a little bit of how to identify these patients and then get them on the road to what comes next. Because if not, what happens is we discharge them like we discharge any other patient and they return to their human trafficking uh, position. Uh, I don't generally use a lot of statistics because I think they get lost on people. Um, but one that I do like to mention is that 63% on average of human trafficking uh, victims have been through an emergency department at least one time. As the nurse, ringing the alarm and starting the process is critical. Agreed. And it can be something very simple. You know, if you suspect something, ask the patient to go to the restroom for a urine sample and show them where the bathroom is. That's a very easy and simple and logical way to separate somebody from uh, their trafficker because it makes sense for somebody to go to the restroom alone. Um, you can tell their trafficker that they you have to take them for a short test. You know, it may not come to anything. You may ask them some additional questions and nothing may come of it. Or when they have that moment of being alone, that is when you may, you know, they may confide something into you that allows you to help them. If the nurse suspects something, what is the next step? So if, if the patient is able to tell you that something like human trafficking is going on, uh, one of the first steps is actually going to be to call 911 and to file a police report. Uh, it is 100% illegal and the police need to be involved. Another thing we do if they're a minor, you should get a social worker involved, get a child line filed. I mean, any nurse can file a child line, but you know, in certain facilities, I know the social worker does it. So if anybody is uncomfortable uh, with either of those things, a social worker is a great resource. Um, but the big thing is to do 
the appropriate steps to get law enforcement involved. Um, there's also, depending on where somebody lives, because um, I'm not quite sure you know, how wide the audience will be here, um, there is actually a national human trafficking hotline. Um, it has a number that is uh, 1-888-373-7888. Just in case anybody would hear this and one part of that sticks in their mind. Um, another option for the human trafficking hotline is they can actually text be free. That can be texted by the healthcare worker, that can be texted by the individual. Um, so if you have a victim of human trafficking that is very reluctant to stay or will not stay, if you can even give them a, that resource as they fly out the door, there may be a time when they are actually willing to use that number or to use that text. Um, now in Philadelphia, you know, they have the wonderful resource of the Philadelphia Center Against Sexual Violence. Um, once I, I, they would be one of the first places that I would contact if I was working in an emergency room there, um, because they would be able to set them up if a forensic exam is needed, and they will be able to set them up with both legal and uh, future therapeutic interventions, which will be very important um, because this is a population that may have never completed school. They may have never held a, a true legal job. So life skills are something that are very important, you know, in that immediate future of getting them safe, it seems a little further down our list of needs. But if you're looking at their big picture, those kinds of organizations are going to be who actually helps them get on their feet and makes it so they're able to overcome the trauma that they felt and become a productive member of society. I know you said about calling the police, of course, if they're under 18, we have to as mandated reporters. Now, if they're over 18, and they don't want to, how would you guide someone in that situation? How would you guide a nurse in that situation? So in that situation, you know, the, the patient absolutely does not have to cooperate. Um, there would be one exception to, to this in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, if they confess to you that they have ever been threatened with a weapon, that is actually, that does actually fall under mandated reporting. Um, so in that case, they would not have to cooperate with you. Um, but if they do not want the police called while you are, while they are in the hospital or any of those things, you can't force them to cooperate, but you can still report to the police and the police can do their own investigation. You know, sometimes this gets a little tricky if you have your patient for a short period of time because you have such a small amount of time to establish some trust with them. And if they, if you're fearful that you involving the police immediately may cause them to leave without receiving necessary or needed medical treatment, it is okay to try to help them be treated, try to continue talking with them and, you know, call the police a little bit later. Sometimes it, it comes down to an individual situation and what would be best. Cause we don't want to tell them we're going to call the police and have them immediately flee with say, not being treated for the infection they came for, or maybe not getting a fracture splinted or a laceration completed. We want to make sure those things happen um, and that we don't frighten them. So sometimes it is a, a very hard uh, line to walk. Yeah. Two very important things can be done if somebody is ever on the fence and not quite sure what to do. You can involve your social work services, depending on the facility. I do know some facilities have 24 seven ER social work, some do not. Uh, if you're ever present in a department that does not have 24 seven social work, 
resources like the Philadelphia Center Against Sexual Violence, they do have people on 24-7, and that is absolutely their area of expertise. It would be perfectly reasonable to take a moment, call them, and ask for their guidance in a particular situation. Let's head back to Teresa Zelensky to summarize why nurses can have such an impact in identifying potential victims of human trafficking. Well, nurses have been the number one trusted profession in the United States for about 20 years running. So we know that the public trusts us. We know we spend so much time with the patients in respect to everybody else within the environment. I think your nurse is the person who's there at your bedside the majority of the time. So who better to have that relationship with? And if you're going to disclose something you know, you're going to disclose it to somebody that you trust. And if you think about culturally, who are they identifying with? So making sure that we're using interpreting services appropriately, not necessarily using people in the room so that they feel free to tell us again in their own language to somebody who they feel can actually hear them um, and understand what they're saying is also so important. So now that we've learned what human trafficking is, common signs of human trafficking, and why nurses can have such an impact on identifying human trafficking victims. We need to explore what we as nurses should do next. I'm here with Dr. Gopal from Villanova University, who is an expert on the topic of human trafficking. Dr. Gopal, how do we ensure healthcare staff have the education and support they need to identify and provide human trafficking victims the proper resources? I think the first thing we need to consider is that human trafficking awareness, education, and training has to be ongoing. For example, it's important that when people are new to an agency, that they receive appropriate orientation that's tailored to the types of human trafficking um, that they may see in that agency. I think it's also important that we have continuing education in place. One of the things that is a good way to help people remember to do continuing education, and I would say at least twice a year, is that January has been designated as the official month for human trafficking awareness uh, each January, the president puts out a proclamation about human trafficking and ways to um, eliminate it and hopefully ways to raise awareness of all healthcare providers as well as the general public. One of the other things that's important is that we need to have posted in healthcare agencies a hotline number and also to put the text be free. B-E-F-R-E-E. When those things are available, it brings to people's mind the awareness of human trafficking and also any information that you can make available on your nursing units would be an excellent way to go. It's important that people have the background and training. So for example, uh, healthcare agencies can use the training modules that are available on the polarisproject.org website. Mm -hmm. There are many other agencies that provide training as well as um, healthcare continuing education agencies. We really should be familiar with agencies that are available in the area that help victims of human trafficking and to have relationships with them and to have perhaps panel presentations or lunch and learns or any other opportunities where people can come together and raise awareness. So this becomes something that is on your radar and that you're very familiar with. When 
we're in healthcare agencies. We need to make sure that we look at what policies and procedures are there and the protocols for reporting when you have a potential person who has been a victim of human trafficking. That needs to be something that all staff are aware of and know about. Yeah. And if there isn't a, a protocol or a policy in place, maybe taking that initiative of create one with the guidance of your superiors and your chief nursing officer. Absolutely. There are many groups in the agencies that we care for patients that really do have the people power and the awareness and what they need to develop is the resources. And there are many resources that people will gladly lend to you. And there are many people that can consult as you come up with um, policies and procedures. One of the things that I had done in an agency not too long ago was to include a journal club on human trafficking. And the reason that we did that is because people said, I don't know much about that. And so when you look at not just the theoretical articles and the background and the models that help us to become aware and identify potential victims of human trafficking, but also to look at the evidence, you know, what kinds of strategies are working, what kinds of questions work well when you're interviewing and assessing people. Those kinds of uh, articles contain the evidence that nurses can use in their daily practice. And that way, when you come across someone that could potentially be a victim, you feel comfortable about what do I do next instead of feeling alone. Yes. And one of the things to keep in mind is that just like we interview all people for uh, domestic abuse mm-hmm. and inter- an intimate partner violence, we also be- have gained that familiarity of asking those important questions over the years. And human trafficking questions um, are often similar in the sense that the violence is often an antecedent to a person who is a victim of trafficking. So anytime we can communicate on those difficult topics, we're preparing ourselves to not only assess for violence, but we're also looking at one of the most horrific forms of violence, and that is human trafficking. Time out. Think back to that initial scenario. What was missed? Signs of human trafficking were missed. We as a healthcare community need to initiate policies and protocols to identify and intervene appropriately when human trafficking is suspected. Collectively, nurses are trusted members of the healthcare team with the voice and scope to begin this system-wide change to better understand what human trafficking is, signs that can be identified, and what we need to do if human trafficking is suspected. If you or someone you know is being trafficked, please call the free and confidential human trafficking hotline at 1-888-3737-888. Again, that's 1-888-3737-888. Another option is to text either HELP or INFO to 233-733. Again, it's 233-733, and that stands for Be Free. This has been Ring the Alarm, a podcast for emergency room nurses, brought to you by me, your host, Alex Hudson, an emergency department nurse and graduate student, in collaboration with the Office of Health Promotion, the M. Louise Fitzpatrick College of Nursing at Villanova University, and WXVU Villanova Radio.